0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of uh, my podcast. And apologies for the slight uh, hiatus between uh, episodes. However, uh, as I'm always delighted, my regular listeners will know, but really delighted to um, have Brent on today. Uh, because Brent and I met uh, indirectly many moons ago in Brent's former life, uh, albeit tangentially, because Brent's background is ex-CEB, for those that know, then then became Gartner, now with uh, ecosystems US, which we'll uh, get into. But Brent is actually the co-author, I believe, co-author is correct, of the Challenger sale uh, process and the Challenger customer process, which I was brought up on in my uh, in my early sales uh, youth. So it's a bit of fanboying here to have the author of said sales process. Um, on. And uh, you will note the title is the death of sales men, recognized people, person, death of sales uh, generally, which we're going to get into uh, today. But uh, as always, uh, Brent, I always start with my guests, kind of a who, what, why, when, where, <laughs> and then uh, let's get uh, let's get stuck into this.
1: Cool. Hey, um, awesome. It's great to be with you, Alex. And, and with uh, all all the listeners out there however many there may be of all of you um i always joke that, like you know it's like oh it's the brent episode there's probably two but that's okay uh, and one's my mom uh but it's great to be with all of you guys the um so my name is brent adamson uh i some some of you you may know me as you hear that line from the simpsons but the uh the author of the challenger sale um <laughs> the uh, which by the way blew up in ways that one could never have imagined which is really humbling and super cool um but i have got a long career of trying to understand what world-class selling and marketing, particularly in B2B and enterprise B2B looks like um, through a lot of research and a lot of talking to executives around the world. Um, I've since started uh, about, gosh, about three or four weeks ago at a company called Ecosystems. It's a relatively small company. It's SaaS software. Um, And actually, it's interesting, Alex. um, This actually is going to come back in the conversation, perhaps, if we wanted to, at least. Mm -hmm. It's pretty germane because Ecosystems, the, the software that we work on, is um, lives and breathes in the world of what's called value management or value engineering. And I'm finding that a lot of people know a lot about this and a lot of people don't. Um, I've been adjacent to the world of value management for the better part of 10 years and didn't even know it. Um, And it's really actually interesting because in sales, it's not something we spend a lot of time talking about. This is often the SME we bring in to do some sort of value calculation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think that value management, particularly in a tough economic context like today, is going to it's kind of like you remember like customer success came out of nowhere about seven mm-hmm. years ago no one had heard of it now everyone's got one watch the space for value management i think that's what it's about but uh, i this it's, i guess it's a plug and now hey I'm, I'm shameless there you go but okay. i'll do the quick I'll, plug then we'll talk about soon. <laughs> we'll talk about some cool stuff we'll bring it all around in a circle at the end but uh, the, the, it's very cool software that um helps suppliers and customers uh, collaboratively identify and then define the dimensions of value along which they want to measure a relationship and then track that value over time, whether it's in a land or expand or a success or a service context, Um, and it's really slick. But the whole idea, and this is actually super germane to what I wanna share with you guys today, if you're interested, is is it creates a really powerful framework for having productive conversations with your customer on the things that they care about most, sometimes which they didn't even know they should be caring about in the first place, which goes right back to Challenger. So that's, the, that's what I'm up to now. I, I lead our, so I like to think Chad Quinn, who's the founder and CEO of the company, has kind of given me a home just to keep doing the research that I do. It's almost like having a, a research studio and I'll be building out our communities there. So anyway, uh, so anyone who's interested, uh, hit me up. <laughs> You'll find it. Yeah, yeah, I'll
0: yeah. put the link into. The, i never still cool, this YouTube thing. The links um, somewhere. Too, yeah. What have you and uh, maybe get. And we'll probably. Come and in don't before. forget
1: to smash that like button and hit subscribe. Smash that like button exactly.
0: <laughs> um, the and the whole ecosystem piece is 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 interesting, and I believe we will get to that point. or yeah. Come back on again, and we can talk about it because I'm starting to see the likes of Jill Rowley um, talk oh, about yeah. you know selling in ecosystems and selling through partnership models rather than in isolation. Because fundamentally, we all solve. All of us together, our little component parts actually solve normally the entire problem that an organization is trying to solve, especially if it's a large, yeah. complex uh, organization. Uh, in fact,
1: Jill, think... Jill called me about three three months ago now and said, is this on your radar screen? Because it needs to be. And it was the three words I've heard come over the horizon in the last six months or so. And this goes right back to the title of your podcast. Yeah. Um is the three words are ecosystems, not the company I now work for, but the concept more broadly. Ecosystems, uh, partnerships, and communities are the three things that I think particularly in the SaaS community, in the tech space, um, uh, companies are leaning into heavily uh, because they're finding that the classic sort of SDR, BDR, send out lots of emails and in-mails and everything else, is um, it's run its course in terms of, there's diminishing returns there. There's only so many times I can spam the universe with cold calls uh, before it stops working and and right, for those who do that for a, a living you know what i'm talking about right <laughs> so it's, it's exactly. a, yeah by the way i've been that guy or at least I haven't, I haven't been that guy but i've been the person who's assigned to help those people so i've oh, sat yeah. we used to at ceb we had we had a whole building that was just it was two floors of a building that was our sales floor and and we had these tiny little cubicles which we called shower stalls because they were well, that's what effectively they were. There was the a size of a very small, like a European shower stall. You'll appreciate that, right? Because it's like, you know, I'm taking a shower. And, and we'd get in there, two of us, and we sit in a chair and we dial for dollars, right? That's, that's what we called it, right? And we would just take two hours and they just start with a list and they start at the top. And and it was just crank them out, phone call after phone call, but phone call. Now, of course, it's more emails, but um, this wasn't that long ago. I mean, it was 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. And, and then as soon as someone picked up, you just went, right? You just like, you dive right in. And then they say, hi, I'm so glad I caught you. Now, let me turn it over to Brent Adamson. And it's like, I, 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 it's like, dad, I'm supposed to be the subject matter expert, say something smart.
0: We, we all did it. I mean, back in my right? days, it was the smile, smile and dial, or you don't get your chair back until you made six appointments. You don't get your chair back? Are you no, serious? Some of the management style I, I I had was you don't get your chair back until you made six appointments and poor, some poor salesperson still at the end of the day, still standing now. Oh my God, that's...
1: That can't even be legal, man. That's Probably like straight up hazing.
0: So we didn't totally do we
1: didn't stuff. do so much That so I call that the stick. We did more of the carrot, which is you book X number of calls, you get 30 not even 30 So you get 10 seconds in the money booth. So we had a money booth. I don't know, like, you know like everyone has a gong, right? You got a gong, but if you're really cool, you got a money booth, you get 20 seconds in the money booth, a little you know, the, either the, the, the yeah, pound yeah. notes or the dollars flying around and they would actually like stick in like little pieces of paper back in the day, like trip to Hawaii, and they'd throw it in there and people would go bananas for this stuff. Um, For what's whether we can butt this part up if you want, but this is like the history of sales, which isn't because it's still present day for so many. But in 2000, I don't know when it was, 2014, maybe we wrote an article for HBR based on a lot of research that we had done. And and I called it dismantling the sales machine. And that's what I was referring to was just that whole activity driven sales culture of dialing for dollars and booking appointments. Um, The premise based on a lot of data was that activities don't necessarily lead to outcomes, like the things that you like your... Your actions don't lead to customer reactions. There's a disconnect there, and so mm-hmm. if you're just monitoring actions, you're not going to actually be able to predict your, your funnels. Give me a mess because you, they don't—they're not predictive of actual customer outcomes. And so we called that dismantling the sales machine and provided an alternative answer. And that's still, I think, it's your main article. What I find today in the SaaS world is we've kind of we're remantling the sales machine, and only—that's a made-up word, but I kind of like it. But the—but uh, I think that's what this now i'll put a button in it so they bring it here we go full circle that's why i think there's so much interest in this idea of ecosystems and communities and partnerships mm-hmm. today is because a lot of these SaaS companies are looking for blitz growth or blitz scale and, and yeah. they've got investors saying like where's my money particularly now they're realizing oh bleep that playbook just doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. and it's like oh i could have told you that 10 years ago but when, it's funny when you're working off a small denominator everything looks like you're a genius, right? Because growth comes so easy when you're working off a small denominator, easier as a relatively speaking. Um, And because, uh, and then at some point you hit, like you get big enough that that playbook doesn't work anymore. And then you start looking around either for a different playbook or for an exit. And that's that's why I think the SaaS world is so interesting is because you, You've got an exit it's like he's like yeah. i could i could run this thing until it's broke and then i'm gonna sell it just like you don't have to worry about what comes next it's like you just you you bail it's a which leads to all sorts of really bad behaviors when you know that the best punish the worst possible punishment for you running these bad sales plays is to make a couple million hundred million dollars i mean that's i'm way overstating i'm way over the tips you know, of my skis you're but not. It's, it's yeah like, I,
0: mean, I love the, the the enthusiasm but actually it, it all ties into actually you know, what we were talking about in, in the green room when we uh, caught up um, yeah. on this around this narrative that I am certainly starting to see play out from, you know, research analysts across the um, the piece or, you know, the HubSpots of the world or the Salesforce of the world, or the Microsofts or the, the whomevers, that this kind of, this death of the yeah. role of sales. And I think I'm going to get this wrong, but you shared some stats with me in terms of the, it's the next generation of buyer A percentage not wanting to engage with salespeople per se. So that's what I was keen to kind of unpack a little further with you. And the I agree with you. Are we remantling the sales process, or has the sales process gone so far reliant that we're doubling down on the tech? We've been doubling down on the technology and the science of getting the cadence right and this and that and that versus actually taking a step back. To your earlier point around these activities, don't create the reaction that we need. And fundamentally, sales is just talking to a human being,
1: (laughs) right? Yeah. It's, you know, it's a really great question. And by the way, this is going to sound really pedantic, and like I'm correcting you, I'm not. It's, but the, the, the language used is not sales process. Now they say that only because I think you and I both agree like having a sales process is pretty important. Yeah. So that's a good thing, right? We call it the sales machine yeah. because there's something like just like activity driven for the sake of activity. That's where I think whether you call it process or methodology or mean, machine.
0: To, exactly, you know, right? Right, 100%. Standard. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. So, okay, so death of a, a sales person. By the way, I get the title. It's like one of the single best, pieces of literature plays ever written. Arthur Miller is a University of Michigan grad, Go Blue. Um, and if you haven't seen the, the version with Dustin Hoffman in the lead role as Willy Loman, freaking mind-blowing. It's just so good and kind of depressing. Um, but the, but uh, like, <laughs> we'll have a conversation about existential dread some other time, but this, it's all baked in there, it's good stuff. But, the, uh, but, but I think, you know, this like decades and decades and decades of what I would argue is, for lack of a better term, bad behavior in sales has gotten like we're the it's like you reap what you sow and and we don't reap what we sow just as individuals we reap what we sow as a profession so even mm-hmm. the the like we're all paying the price for the bad actors or or the people not even bad actors but people who did what they were told to do which is bang out a thousand calls so you can get 30 seconds in the money booth 30 yeah. seconds a long time in the money booth now i think about it but anyway the um uh as a result customers have gotten to the point now and we all know this to be true Anecdotally, is is that mm-hmm. when I was still at Gartner, we could see it very clearly in the statistics as well in the data. The customers are kind of fed up. They just don't want to talk to sales reps anymore. So, so here's the data I shared with you. And just to be all um, full disclosure here, I want to give full credit to the, the research team at Gartner, which of course I was part of up until mm-hmm. just you know a couple of months ago. So this is quote unquote their data. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still working through my pronouns of our versus we are, but the uh there and um but one of the things that we've been watching, they've been watching now, I guess, over the last couple of years is about three years ago. We, we did see this really fascinating statistic. And I don't even remember how we thought to even ask this question originally yeah. in, our, in our research, but someone came up with it and we put it into our customer surveys that we used to run every year. They still do. Um, and it was simply a very basic question, which is if, if we're a, notice it's a hypothetical. It's not would you or can you, but uh, well, not can you or do you, but rather would you, right? So if it were possible, yeah. would you prefer to buy this complex solution without speaking to a sales rep at all? right? So we've talked a lot in the past about the fact that customers delay interactions with customers, with, with sales reps as long as possible, that they do much of their learning on their own. But this was like taking it to a, a whole new extreme, which is rather than delaying that conversation as long as they can, what if you could just like eliminate it altogether? Mm-hmm. It's again, hypothetical. Yeah. Um, when we first asked that question, surprise. and by the way, just real quick, this is B2B we're talking about and specifically yeah. enterprise sales. So this is not like buying toothpaste, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on On mm-hmm. Amazon. This is you know, industrial turbines, this is business services, this Is uh, 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 tech, you know, uh, what's it, uh, IT spend. <laughs> Why is that so hard? Exactly, thank you. Oh my God, it's like, I'm old. Brain stops working every 10 seconds. I have to reboot, unplug and plug it back in. But the, uh, all right, so interestingly, about uh, about a third of customers said, actually, you know what, if that were possible, I kind of would love that. Mm-hmm. So that was telling it's like, wow, a third of customers say they'd prefer to buy complex solutions without talking to a sales rep. We, so we revisited the year later, slightly different questions. So it's not really apples to apples exactly. So be mm-hmm. careful the methodology there. Yep. Um, but that number came back the following year at 43%. And, and I did a keynote on this. It's still actually out there on LinkedIn as that Gartner sales conference keynote from 2021. And, mm-hmm. and you can still watch it. And, and we, we presented some really fascinating and, frankly, dramatic and kind of scary data if you're in sales around, on average, 43% of customers, B2B buyers, tell us they'd prefer to buy without a, um, talking to a sales rep at all. For millennials in that particular analysis, mm-hmm. it was over half. It was I think it was 54% or 53%. Yeah. Um, so this is, you know, just under a majority saying, if I could, I'd rather buy without talking to a sales rep. And then fast forward to 2022 in the spring. This is right as I was departing. The last thing I did at Gartner before I left was I, I I worked with the team to write the keynote, which I ultimately didn't present because I'd left. But um, my my friend, dear friend and colleague uh, Alice Walmsley did. Um, But that number actually, Alex, had gone again. Apple is it's it's like, it's like Jonathan apples to delicious apples. You know what I mean? It's like it's not apples to oranges, but it's it's not. The the question was not quite the same. So I got to be a little careful on how I present this. But the, uh, but that number had gone from the low 40s to the low 70s. Isn't that crazy? I mean, like, right, that number had gone up so high in just such a short amount of time. And I think you could go pandemic and, you know, uh, it all, you know, like not talking to salespeople in person, but just to be clear, this is not customers saying, I'd rather talk to a sales rep on Zoom or some other platform instead of in person in my office. This is, I'd rather not engage with a sales rep in any form at all. Yeah. And I think a lot of companies, uh, a lot of heads of sales I presented that work to, their first reaction was. Well, this is really interesting and maybe a little dramatic, but the same thing every time, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm different because every freaking company is convinced that they're so desperately different from everyone else. And by the way, they're not um, because we're all humans at the at the end of the day. But they say, I'm different because my customers have to come to us, because what we sell is so complex, or because what we do is so customized, or or we really pride ourselves on the depth of relationships that we build with our customers such that they really want to come to us and build. But if you go out and ask customers, say, no, I'm good. It's like if I could, I'd rather buy this without talking to sales at all. The funny thing is in that keynote that if you were to go watch on LinkedIn, you find is that there's a kicker to this whole story, uh, which is again, because keep in mind it's not what customers are doing. Because mm-hmm. that's what because chief sales officer look at that and say, well, I don't see it. So therefore they dismiss it to say, I don't see it. It's not happening. Therefore it doesn't count. And I would often diplomatically, I hope, say, remember, this is not a measure of what they are doing. It's a measure of what they would prefer to be doing yeah. if they could. Right. Mm-hmm. And so what you have essentially is this widening gap between the way that you're selling in reality versus mm-hmm. the way that your customers would prefer to be buying if they had an opportunity. And that that gap, I think, really represents either risk or opportunity for a competitor or more likely a disruptor to finally find a way to sell the way your customers wanna buy. I mean, the, the best example in the US, which is where I'm based, is a company called Carvana. You probably haven't bumped into these guys yet, but they literally, it's a car company, they use car sales. Um, they sell cars in a vending machine. Then when I say vending machine, literally they build these big buildings okay. That, okay. that look like vending machines. And you go online and you, you pick out your car and you never talk to anyone. And, you, and then you go to this site where there's this big vending machine. And if you want, I guess it's optional, but you could take this like really big coin and put it into the machine. And then the thing, just like you're buying a Diet Coke or something, right? The thing yeah. goes, it latches onto your car and breaks it down and spits it out the machine. And there's your car. It's like, whoa, is that crazy? Uh, Carvana, check it out. Like just this, the images and this stuff is really interesting. I could buy a car in a vending machine. I'll, in fact, I'm just talking to people in real estate. People are now buying houses sight unseen, mm-hmm. at least up until about a few months ago and God knows what's gonna happen with the real estate market now. But this is the point of all this is like, there was a time I'm old enough to remember like, you wouldn't buy shoes without talking to a salesperson. Now, like, why would I ever wanna do that? There is a clear, almost inexorable trend, I think across commerce, towards eliminating sales professionals altogether when possible because of the damage we've done to our profession as a brand. When I just don't see that as valuable to have that interaction. The weird thing, Alex, I just get this idea on the table and I'll get your thoughts on this. Um, the kicker is when you talk to those same customers who say that they'd prefer to buy without talking to a sales rep, they're actually far more likely to regret whatever it is they wind up buying. So it's one of these really interesting, be careful what you wish for it because you just might get it stories, right? Which is say, customers think, oh, there's no value in talking to a rep. I don't want to talk to a rep. It's a pain in my derriere to talk to a rep. They just, they just like, make things worse. So unfair, but true, that, frankly, is true sometimes. But then they go off and do it on their own. They find, oh, this is really hard. This is exhausting. This is frustrating. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm so confused. I'm I, I lack confidence in my ability to make a decision. And that's kind of where we are. We're in this like weird damned if you do, damned if you don't space. So all of that tells me, now bring it home, is I think there's a huge opportunity for sales professionals. It is not the death of a salesman or woman or person or professional. If we can figure out how to do it right, if we kind of if we can if we can find a way to sell or interact or collaborate with our customers in such a way that adds value, which is why I'm at ecosystems. Cause I think what we do is a way, a way to do this is super cool. Um, but if we can find ways to help, to, to help customers feel more confident in the decisions that they're making on behalf of their company, then, then that's our role. Our role is not to sell so much. Our role is not to describe features and benefits. I mean, I, I suppose, when I say our role, I mean, what I mean by that is, our potential role, the opportunity in front of us as sales professionals is to adopt a posture of my job, my single job is to help my customers and potential customers feel more confident, not in me and my product or my brand, but to feel more confident in themselves and the and the decisions that they're making on behalf of their company. And all sorts of goodness comes out of that mental model or that posture is what I'm finding. That's um,
0: awesome. And I'm very much on the uh... same page i've always i've always seen the role of a salesperson is you're you are enabling the purchase you're you're helping the person actually make the in their mind the right decision to do the yeah for the uh for the for the greater good and um you're right we become a victim of our own of our own culture in terms of you're driven by short-term metrics you put more in the machine at the top more gets spat out therefore more kpis therefore we must be that's doing right. more because more equals more equals more because sales is more low.
1: equals good yes 100 numbers game and this is yeah. where,
0: to your point around the way that you know the commerce e-commerce has kind of changed and how that's now bleeding into um b2b we kind of expect that cliched uber amazon um uh, experience and i I see it as, and I, you know, thank you for clarifying. It's people aren't buying this way, but if they would, could, they believe they would prefer it. It's actually then when is the right time for a person to be inserted into the entire sales process to help that person along the journey. And this was coming out of, actually, I think it was, I think it was Gartner, actually, your former uh, your former house in terms of the future CMO at the beginning of the the. Um, year of how they they were predicting that CMOs will be looking at um, how do they use AI to slow down the buying process, to stop buyer regret, and then use data and AI to figure out when is the right time to insert a human being, be it this way, physical, chatbot, what have you, to help that person actually make the right decision to stop your exact point. For the most part, if we self-serve, you're going to be, oh, damn it, I wish I'd known that before I bought it. And now I can't do that. And now I'm stuck in a loop because I didn't speak to a person and so on and um, and so forth, which then comes to what I'm hugely passionate about is kind of the, the importance now of data in yeah. your sales pro- process or the buying process. Yep. well, the customer journey orchestration, so learning what the likes Thunderhead do. Thunderhead has now been acquired by someone um, recently. This is what e-commerce firms do, which then right. reminds me of um, you know, the brilliant piece you did with Jenna Pipchuk and Jeff Lowe, Canadian company Smart Technologies, and what they dismantled, actually, yeah. the sales process, right? And remantled it through to the unified commercial engine. yeah, Based on data and insight, bravery, but actually in a way that their clients wanted to buy. They took the bold approach of, okay, well, that's how you want to buy. We'll sell the way you want to buy, but make sure that we're doing it in a informed way. That's right. <laughs> Rather than we're just going to reinvent the process again for the sake of reinventing the process. So how, how are yeah. you kind of seeing that manifest in, in, in your world?
1: So it's it's uh, there's there's um so many interesting things going on right now and then the um i, I we should find a way to link the that that article that hbr article yeah, the show notes it, or yeah, that would be it, awesome it, it, right because if you haven't seen it um it's it's worth a read and um if that sounds in any way self-serving i apologize it's just it's just so it's impressive what think
0: it's a brilliant read and i fully thank offered, you i know it, i appreciate it, it, honestly it's uh, <laughs>
1: it's um it's a if it's at all brilliant it's because the people that the story that i'm sharing is is done by brilliant people the the team at smart technologies for those who probably don't know them many of us um it's a uh, educational technology company they're based in calgary canada they're owned by foxconn so they're actually part of this massive global network it's kind of interesting but they but they are uh if you go into a, a classroom today just about anywhere in the world oftentimes you'll find like a big Flat, pan, a flannel, flat panel screen or a TV with a projector on the on the, on the ceiling. Uh, that's what smart technologies does. They build that kind of technology to allow classrooms and teachers and students to interact with each other and, and the world and the internet and so on. Okay. So uh, I'll let everyone read the article, right? Because we yeah. could just rehash the whole data. It's super interesting. But what they've done, to your point, is they, they've dismantled sales, marketing, sub, uh, success, customer success, and service. They, they don't have those functions anymore. And they've but they didn't fire anybody, especially not the head of sales and head of marketing, Jeff and Jenna, who I've known. I've known Jeff for literally years. He's a brilliant, brilliant marketer. Jenna's amazing. He's a former head of sales. They now uh, collaboratively run what they call the unified commercial engine. Um, and the whole thing, to your point, Alex, is it's built back from customer buying jobs, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's built back from what are the and this is all based on the jobs to be done approach, uh, which, you know, someone will know from Clay Christensen and the guy named Bob Mesta. Uh, Bob Mesta, by the way, it's M O E S T A. Bob Mesta. He's written a book where he captures a lot of his jobs to be done work for and applied it to sales. It's brilliant, brilliant work. Um, He's a great guy. Um, and so based on research that we did with Bob uh, and then Jeff and Jenna saw from us and then some uh, from other places, too, they put together this, this unified commercial engine. Here, there's a couple points of this. That are, again, the details are in the articles. Check mm-hmm. that out. Uh, yeah. For what it's worth, by the way, um, the title is like totally over the top. It's like sales and marketing are becoming obsolete. That's I, dear friends. Uh, I don't have dear friends, but I, I, I say that because I don't ever want them to not love me at HBR. They're an amazing team at HBR, so hopefully I can keep publishing with them. That title's a little over the top. That's their title, not mine. But I think it's it gets you the uh the the attention,
0: right? Right. Well, it's kind of clickbait.
1: Even HBR does clickbait. (laughs) Who do? But it's like, but they're really good, so it's okay. Um, but the the thing I think that's interesting that's worth drawing out here is, it's kind of the first point you made, which is where. So if that's all true. And, and you're absolutely right. The work that our, my colleagues on the marketing side at Gartner, uh, led by um, uh, Sharon uh, cantor Quervis and some others, brilliant research on, sometimes to move someone more quickly through the funnel, you actually have to slow them down. You actually have to introduce a little bit of friction and mm-hmm. cognitive dissonance into their thinking. And someplace you want to speed them up, someplace you want to speed them, uh, slow them down which by the way is totally consistent with challenger, for example, I need to reframe yeah. them. Just, but but what they did is it's like a, it's a much more nuanced version of that idea, which is sometimes, but not all the time. And there's places you wanna like do the opposite perhaps, make things easier. Sometimes you wanna make things at least cognitively a little harder. Um, here's the thing that Jeff and Jenna kind of realized, which I came out of a lot of our research and a lot of their own experience too, is um, you mentioned when is the right time mm-hmm. to do this, right? And I think for a lot of us in sales, um, that goes back to our comment earlier about the sales process. We would probably think to resolve the, an, or find an answer to that question, when is the right time in, in terms of steps, yeah. a linear motion, right? So if a sales process, I don't know, 10 steps long goes from, you know, like, I don't know, opportunity, identification down to close, and then implementation, yeah. we say, so is it stage three that I slow them down? Is it stage five that we slow them down? And what we found in all of our uh, research is that that's probably not the best way to do it. And this is why I, I really just so deeply res- respect what Jeff and Jen have done at SMART is in redefining sort of what they're trying to do, which is not move someone through their sales process and not even move someone along the customer buying journey. I think more um, people have spent a little more time with this stuff, well, we don't do that. We try to move customers through their buying journey. Um, The the language they've adopted is how can we help our customers complete their buying jobs to their satisfaction, Mm -hmm. which is a very different language. Um, it's, it's, It's not language of progression, it's language of completion right yeah. how do i help my and this is all consistent with a jobs to be done kind of perspective that bob mm-hmm. put together and the reason why that matters is because it's an acknowledgement that those jobs aren't necessarily completed in linear order right mm-hmm. so so broadly speaking we often talked about jobs as problem identification solution exploration uh requirements building supplier selections it's just a very basic approach so, um at, at smart we i talk about in the article they have a they've learn customers have a learn job and a buy and an implement mm-hmm. so it's pretty similar But just because, so if I identify a problem, so then I, okay, God, I have identified a problem. Now I'm gonna go explore solutions. But in the process of exploring solutions, you realize, oh bleep, there's a whole dimension to this problem I totally didn't anticipate. I could go back and, and, or someone else, oh, here comes procurement or legal or someone else. They've got other questions, which sets us back. So it's often two steps forward, one step back, or one step forward, two steps back. We created this graphic called the long, with the title was the long hard slog, which was, I call it the spaghetti bowl. At Gardner, which is this graphic with arrows all yeah. it's like here's the four buying jobs across the center and there's just arrows going everywhere and it's just a big mess martha mathers drew that diagram on a sunday afternoon sitting on her couch with her kids and it's brilliant it's just absolutely brilliant she's gone on to be a cmo herself and and this is just the reality of um of of just buying it's non-linear it's a mess and and so our job i think so so how do we how do we rehabilitate the salesperson mm-hmm. our job at least can be mission, should we choose to accept it, would be to ask, how can we materially simplify that long, hard slog for our customers? How can we help them anticipate obstacles such that they can avoid them? How can we help them see landmines so that they don't step on them figuratively? That If that's too mm-hmm. graphic, I apologize. How can we help them get people involved earlier that typically get involved later and blow yeah. things up? And how can we help them answer their questions um, uh, proactively? So this is all part of a world we call Fire enablement, because the idea is if you can do that, you can make them more confident. Now, to bring that all full circle to when is the right time, the right time is not in step five or step four or step three. The right time is at those moments when customers are directly involved in completing that job. So, And sometimes you can actually prompt someone into a, into mm-hmm. a job or back into a job. So if they're building out requirements, this is kind of heart and soul challenger too, if they're building yeah. out requirements and baking out the RFP, who's to say you can't ask the right kinds of questions or provide the right kind of framework to lead them on a journey that puts them back into problem identification mode. Mm-hmm. Hopefully not in an exasperating and frustrating way, but in a productive way such that they can think like, oh, you're right, we didn't think of that. We need to go back and think about that a little more. And then and rather than just like saying, good luck on that, call me in a week when you're ready to buy, you might say. And as you go through that, there's we have found in working with other customers like you, that there's probably three questions you got to figure out here, and here's those three questions. Now, what the answer is to those questions is going to be different for each company. It'll be different for you because every company's different. So you run yep. right at what they think is true, right? It's not true, but run right at it. Give them some credit for that, right? It's because you're different. So here's how, here's how many companies will answer these three questions. You'll have to come to your own conclusions. If you'd like some more information, we're happy to help you think about or provide you context of other companies and give you a sense for how they've figured this out. But, but you need to feel confident on these three dimensions in order for you to feel good about this purchase. What I'm doing there is less challenger. It's less frame breaking. And what I would call instead is more frame making. So mm-hmm. I think that's the role of sales professionals today. We talk about empathy and we talk about humanness and connection and building trust and all that stuff's important. It's just kind of abstract. So I think in a very practical sense, it is How can I take my customer by the hand and become their, figuratively, because that'd be weird otherwise, um, and become like their their Sherpa, their guide through this decision-making process by giving them a framework that they can use to confidently come to their own conclusions. It's a very Socratic way of thinking about selling, as opposed to showing up and saying, I've been doing this for 30 years look here's what i don't know if you say look that sounds really snarky doesn't it but i say i've been doing this for 30 years i have found there's two things you got to get right here's what you need to do and i just show up and just tell you the answer yeah. goes over really horribly I, there's the other article in hbr that that came out recently as uh, one that i wrote on something called sense making and sense making is is kind of this it's like if it's one is buyer it's helping you through decision making complexity sense making is helping you navigate information complexity and feeling more confident about the decisions you make on all that great information that's out there. And again, the answer can't be just tell you here's the two things you need to know because no one trusts someone who says, Trust me. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? <laughs> right. This I know, right? So this is by the way, cause, cause, by, for what it's worth as a footnote to a footnote to a, I think we're deeply nested. It's like a Matryoshka footnote at this point. It's like Russian nesting dolls, but that's okay. But the uh is this word so every time I talk about these things, someone says, Oh, you need to be a trusted advisor. And my reaction is always like no. I guess it's like yes no I don't it's like an empty vessel like I mean anything so if if you yeah. mean exactly what I'm talking about by trusted advisor then yes, but if it's like show up and be friendly probably not so anyway.
0: yeah the, well the trusted advisor is another thing that's just been done to done to death in terms of what does that actually, um, actually Me. mean I really you know, yeah. I like the jobs to be done completed piece. And you know, I, love, I again, I'm I'm a big advocate of that that slide your colleague created in terms of the, sp- yeah. the spaghetti yeti bowl. It's brilliant. Stuff. Here's yeah. the buying process, and this is just one person. Imagine if you've got eight people involved in this, uh, uh, in this yeah. doing this with different tensions, different um, different agendas, different jobs to be done at different um, uh, different times. And what LinkedIn refers to as uh, as multi-threading, it's no it's no easy, uh, easy task. So, with all that in in mind. Yeah. Going kind of full circle then back to yes, okay. We've got our avid listeners, my mother, your mother, whomever listening <laughs> to uh, to this, going, what are they talking about? Um, yeah. as a CRO or yeah. head of sales or what have you, or an SDR, AE, BDR, whatever, it doesn't really really doesn't really matter. You're thinking, going, okay, that's all well and good, Brent. I get it. Yeah. But I the way that I my metrics are driven, whatever those metrics might be, do not support that methodology if we're going to call it methodology or the um the 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 the, well, yeah. read the article listen to the podcast the unified commercial engine that doesn't support that way of working so what are some of the things that w- we can potentially do to at least start this journey of recognition that people want to buy differently they probably yeah. do want to talk to human beings they probably do need to talk to sales people in some shape or form Yep. but you sit there going if it's kind of working at the moment. This feels really, really hard to do. So, what what would be your advice for somebody to? Where do you begin to start unraveling all of this and try and start that journey of sales transformation? If you, uh, if you will. I, I'm, I'm with you.
1: It's such a great question, Alex. So, let's, I mean, there's uh, uh, there's a there's ton to unpack here. So, for the sake of time, let me just throw out a couple of quick ideas of just to, and then. Further conversations, yep. I'm happy to have them. I'm I'm no longer in the role of an advisor to sales leaders, although I'm happy to just do that for fun. Uh, and that may have been a mistake. <laughs> LinkedIn's about to blow up. Um, but but you know that one of the ways is to do it with better tools. Of course, so there is that plug for ecosystems and why I'm here. I'm literally here because I think the tool that we now that I'm now part of um, mm-hmm. getting out into the world is a. Is a powerful tool for having these kinds of conversations with customers. It's a frame-making tool. It's a buyer-enablement tool around information. So I'll I'll leave that there, and I'm mm-hmm. more than happy to talk to anyone about yeah. like how do you have conversations with your customers around the dimensions of value that really matter? Sometimes when nobody even knows, and you can use this tool to help you figure that out with prompting and things like. It's very right. cool. So that's an example. But I think at a high level, Alex, there's there's kind of the way I always think of these things, and we talk about this in the Challenger work too, is at two levels, there's organizational capability and there's individual skill. Mm-hmm. And at the organizational level, um, I think just the, the 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 profile of smart technologies is like at the highest level. That's like we kind of need to think about rewiring the entire commercial engine, right? It's a uh, it's a scripted line that I wrote a while ago, but I I do believe it sincerely, which is I think the single biggest barrier to breakout growth in the next five years is going to be our own internal structural silos okay. period. I think the fact that we do this in sales and this in marketing and this in, in success and now this in service, and now there's this thing called value management. If we, I've been, Already in three weeks into this profession of value management, I've been harping on everyone in this field. It's like, if we just set this up as yet one more function, we're toast because (laughs) it's the last thing we need is yet one more function inside the commercial organization. Um, So it's, I don't know that you need to build smart. This is, I think, the the, the downfall of that article in HBR on Smart is people look at that and say, I could never do that, or I can't do that, or I won't do that. I I, I don't think Smart would say, I, I think they'd agree with me in saying, No one's suggesting that what they've done is the right answer and you must do that. It is a right answer and it's a right answer for them. But I think at the heart of it is a principle we need at the organization level to find a way to, uh, how do you say this without sounding just cliche, to better align all of the different activities across these legacy functions such that we're not solving for functional excellence, but Mm -hmm. such that we're solving for customer confidence um and that's going to how you do that exactly so this is why you see the rise of things like revenue operations or revops because a lot of that data of course transcends transcends these boundaries as well so there's there's a lot to talk about there um i think also at the organizational level i spend a lot of time talking to you know c suite officers that sounds very but but i you know I, i've i've had the privilege of talking to a lot of very senior people it's super cool and i tell them the same thing i, t- I tell someone at the individual level the individual skill level which is my sense is the best thing that we can do right now is run everything through the lens of customer confidence. Mm-hmm. Whatever we do and however we choose to engage with our customers through whatever channel, whether it's website design, whether it's sales collateral, whether it's individual sales interactions um, uh, in, in, you know, on Zoom or in person, is to ask yourself, what are the things that are gonna make our customers less confident, not in us, but less confident in themselves and how do we help them, how do we combat that? How do we help them feel more confident to make not just a decision, but a bigger decision? And that might be helping them feel more confident about the information they're looking at. Help them feel more confident about the conclusions they're coming to. Help them feel more confident about their own ability to navigate their internal sales complexity. Um, to do that at the individual level, I think what that takes is, you know, it's like you, you kind of made the point, Alex, is like, God, this is so hard. And I think that's just, yeah. But I think that it's like an empathy point of, you know what's really hard for is your customer. And, and, and you ask anyone on the buying side, you know, senior executives who have to buy on behalf of their company, and a lot of salespeople sometimes are involved in this as well. And you ask them, what's one word, one adjective to describe a, a recent buying experience that you've been involved in on your company? And they, that, I've, I've done this literally thousands of times around the world, the before times when we traveled, and they'd always say long, hard, frustrating, awful. I, I never heard a positive word ever. My yeah. all-time favorite was a CMO in Chicago. Is that her word, Her one word, one adjective to describe her buying experience was, I never want to do that again. That was her word. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's so, I,
0: I agree. It's, do you know what, what I mean? I, it's it's awful. It's, first, it's, yeah, we're experiencing it's, it's just that first awful. time. I mean, only, only yeah. yesterday, after four months of toing and froing, expecting that a meeting was supposed to be solving the answer we were asking, it yeah. transpired that we knew more about that product than they did. And yeah. I lost it. I, I lost it on the call going with the great respect, very firmly, but politely going, this is just isn't good enough four months and we still haven't moved this forward and you've just given me a piece of information which i know is fundamentally wrong because i'm on your website yeah. <laughs> your website is telling me something different and you've got two yeah. technical people going oh my goodness you've got the a going oh rah, rah. yeah this is like this is me back channeling with my colleague on on um team's chat going why is this so bleep hard
1: <laughs> right <laughs> question that it, it are is on not yeah.
0: difficult um,
1: so so what if your job as a sales professional, what if one's job as a sales professional is to figure out my goal and my sole goal? I don't soul My, my sole goal is to go to Cancun on this, you know, the, the <laughs> president's trip, but the, the sales, right? But my, my sole goal, conceptually, is to make it easier. That's yeah. it. That's like, how can I help my customers just feel better about this long, hard slog, feel better about themselves, feel better about the decisions they're making? How can I be the one when they think my name, they think, oh, I got to talk to Alex. He just, every time I talk to Alex, he just makes me feel better about this thing. How do I become that person? And I think that's where empathy really comes in because- to do that, you have to understand what is hard about buying in the first place. What are the places they are going to get hung up? What, what is the information that they're looking at? And how does it confuse them? You have to kind of get inside their head and not just understand their business. You got to understand how they think about their business. You have to understand how they think about the decision-making process. And that's hard, particularly for a 20-something sales rep who's never been in that context before yeah. to do that. So you got to rely on each other as a team, on your leadership team, uh, collectively to kind of build almost like collective empathy, right? To to figure out, but but one way or another, you've got to find a way to put yourself into the head of your customers and kind of not just ask yourself, what do they need to know, but you have to ask yourself, what do they need to feel? And that's when I think some people just do that naturally, I think, but that's that's when that's when you're no longer going to be the death of a salesman. That's when you're going to be, you know, that critical person that I just want to talk to. Because it's like, not only do you help me understand things, I just feel better at myself and my ability to make decisions in my company when I talk to you. Okay. That's gold. The, yeah.
0: the phoenix of the salesman person people what what,
1: whatever, whatever it is well that that's that's it i did that is the rebirth of the sales profession but it's never going to happen at scale if we've got heads of sales saying bang the phones and here's your 30 seconds in the money booth we are our own worst enemies it's like it's like everything we do in life seems to be you know, like the planet of the, Apes, the original movie it's like you blew it all up you bastards right it's like it's like we this is why we can't have nice things alex i'm a little skeptical today but it's like but I think that what well, I think this is the battle we win at an individual level because collectively we'll find a way to screw it up. If nothing else, we'll all do it and become commoditized and we'll have to find something new to do down the road. But for now, that's our opportunity that as I see it in front of us.
0: Indeed. And if I may add one kind of final piece to the hearing yeah. talk about that kind of the rewiring of, of of all of that and the cliche, put yourself in your customer's shoes. And I was talking yeah. about 20 years ago when all we right? was a phone and the yellow pages to, to um uh, to cold call. Um, was involve your customers. Yeah. Involve your customers. You're long-serving, if you have them, who've bought from you. Work with them collaboratively to work through what that buyer-enabled process might look like and involve Agreed.
1: them. Yeah.
0: In that, rather than we make assumptions on maybe this should happen and this should happen. Yes, we have data and insight. Yes, we have AI and all this kind of stuff. But fundamentally, if we're truly going to be client-centric, customer-centric um, value-enablers, the per, the the people or the person that can answer answer whether you're going to do that right or wrongly. That's a word. That's a grammatically correct.
1: I'll buy it for a dollar. Yep. Is the are the
0: people that are going to be buying what you do? So why not yeah. involve them in that rewiring? Hundred of- percent of your um, your your journeys. In, in fact, let, let
1: me do this, Alex, just uh, to kind of maybe button up with a practical yeah. tip, because I see a lot of your listeners, honestly, all joking joke besides our moms, like, like okay, but freaking tell me what to do. So, uh, or at least give me some advice, which by the way, ironically, is exactly the whole narrative of this conversation is that the, what they feel as individual sellers is what your customers feel as buyers. It's literally the same thing. You know why? Because we're all humans. So, um, but here's a practical tip. For those of you who have customers, or at least have access to customers who have bought your solution successfully, here's a couple of things you might talk to them about ask him hey it, it, I don't know why all conversations seem to start with the word hey but hey um, if you were to um, if you were to buy this again what would you do differently to make it easier or if you were to go on this buying journey one more time what advice do you wish you had gotten that would have made it um, less stressful who who got involved late that you kind of wish you'd gotten in early there's all I mean I could keep riffing but you get the idea like this in other words go to the people who have successfully navigated the minefield and ask them for their advice what advice would you provide to someone else in your shoes about to go on this journey and then share that with permission of course but so you know it's because then I put that into the like what I often joke sounds so cynical the phrase that pays but it's like use cars but but the phrase is simply in working with other customers like you one of the things that we have found is, and so it's like, you know, in working with other customers like you, one of the things we found is that procurement always gets involved in these deals, but they always get in late. When they get in late, it blows everything up. And it's so frustrating. Frustrating, see, I'm playing on emotion, not just knowledge, right? And it's like, I I, I can imagine that drives you nuts too. It's like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. It's like, so what we've learned from these customers is here's here's at least a way to think about it. I'm not telling you here's what you need to do i don't say here's what you need to do right right here's a way to think about the (laughs) language i'm a linguist by training right so language is everything to me right so here's a way to think about it. i'm giving you the choice to opt in here Mm -hmm. um one thing you might consider opt-in is getting procurement involved early what we found from these companies is when you do that there's a way you want to do that And, and here's what they have told us so i'm not telling you what i'm thinking i'm telling i'm just i'm just switzerland i'm just sharing What you want to know desperately, which is what other companies like you do, Um, they have found that when you get them involved early, here's the three questions you got to be ready to answer for them. And, And those three questions are boom, boom, boom. And if I have that conversation with my customers, not, not guaranteed, but I would imagine for a lot of my potential customers say, wow, that was really helpful. Thank yeah. you, you've just made my life easier. That So that's the practical tip is interview your customers, have conversation with them, explore them. You know, we talk about discovery and sales all the time. This is like post-sales discovery. I yeah. think I just made up a new concept, which is discover from existing customers, what was hard, what would they would do differently, and then share that advice uh, diplomatically with permission, maybe with no names attached. Uh, and in a Socratic sort of frame-making way with customers about to go on that journey.
0: There we go. What a way to end. I'm going to trademark that myself. <laughs>
1: oh, come on now. I keep making money for other people. It's, that's my lot in life, Alex. That's what I do.
0: Post sales discovery. Brent, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on. Genuinely, um, it's been a pleasure. I know I've been great fun. Uh, pe- pestering you on LinkedIn and tagging you on posts here, here, left, right, and center, but it's achieved the outcome I wanted. You are now a guest on my um uh, my uh, podcast so that kind of social selling does work when when executed uh, well but we can 100% today um, if people want to reach out to you and learn more about um, ecosystems I can point to your profile that kind of stuff point to the website I'll put the links here somewhere uh, I'll put the links to the, uh, the books you mentioned uh, the very cool you, yeah uh, you wrote all that kind
1: hey, of actually, Alex. On that, real briefly, um, we are uh, on the ecosystems website, ecosystems.us. We're we're actually for those who are actually involved in this thing called value management or interested in it. We're building a Slack community uh, well, a community oh, cool. of which there's a Slack channel. And so you can find more information under resources slash communities on, on, on the website. I'll,
0: I'll give the uh, link to make it as easy as yeah.
1: possible. One, one of the of things time. I do there, by the way, is I just, I like jump into the Slack channel once a day and just ask a totally over the top provocative question and like then people pile on. So if that kind of thing intrigued you, then sign yourself up. Sign yourself up. We'll I, you yourself up.
0: I will. Yeah. Uh, I might join. I
1: might join you. Cool. Him awesome, time man. Another channel. All right. Yeah. Um, except one right. more Slack channel for everyone <laughs> to deal <laughs> with. Oh, God. Information overload. Ironic. Uh, the irony is thick thick i'm telling you really
0: really good to have you on as a guest um really 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 appreciate it thank you um, absolutely
1: alex cheers man
0: all my listeners as always thank you so much for tuning in really really do appreciate it if you want to be on the podcast and you know what to do if you want to recommend guests to be on the podcast you know what to do um but uh as always thank you wherever you are wherever you are in the world have a good day um brent thank you it's been an absolute pleasure
1: cheers man